This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. From Joy 94.9 in Melbourne, I'm Stephanie Longmuir and you're on Dying to Tell podcast series where we explore end of life and death in a frank and honest way. Now in its sixth year, Dying to Know Day, an annual day of action dedicated to bringing to life conversations and community actions around death, dying and bereavement, is Australia's biggest community conversation about death. With over 400 events planned across Australia and over 60% of us believing that we don't talk enough about death. Dying to Know Day provides the perfect opportunity to improve your death literacy. On this episode of Dying to Tell, we're actually dying to know with Kerry Noonan, co-founder, director and executive officer of the Groundswell Project. Kerry Noonan is a clinical psychologist in palliative care and has worked in health and community settings as a community development social researcher. She is a Fellow of the School of Social Entrepreneurs and a PhD candidate at Western Sydney University. And Kerry, welcome. But before we begin, I have to ask you, are you now Dr. Kerry Noonan? Uh, almost. <laughs> because almost. This, this time last year when I tried to interview you, you were overwhelmed with deadlines for your PhD and I'm just wondering how that's going. Well, it's finished. It's in the can. It's um, been examined and I'm just making, um, I'm fixing up my typos. And, um, <laughs> and all those double spaces. <laughs> you know how you can't have the double space anymore? It's a single space. Oh, for some reason I've got, I've, I'm in double space land still <laughs> and in our faculty. So all of that, all of that needs to be um, sorted. But I have... Um, I have passed my examination, but I still need the faculty's approval. So I'm pretty close. It's very exciting. Congratulations. It is an enormous effort um, putting together all of that work. Well done. Yeah, thank you. So six years on, Kerry, can you give me a quick snapshot of how Dying to Know Day started and how it has grown? Yeah, Dying to Know Day had an interesting beginning, actually. The Dying to Know book from um, Igniting Change uh, was the, the main inspiration for, for the, the day. They had a sense that um, they catalyzed social change and, and they'd um, met with a mate of mine, Nicole Endicott, and Nicole was talking with them about the book and they felt that there was more to do with the book and... Um, and so Nicole and I started talking and Dying to Know Day was really born over pizza and beer and cider um, <laughs> in, a, in a cafe in Sydney. And we thought, we kind of took a, you know, a bit of a fun approach, I guess. We said, well, you know, the world needs another day, another awareness raising day. Yeah, right. But <laughs> death hasn't got one. So let's go for it. Let's, let's, um, let's look at trying to create something where everyone in the community can get involved, start a conversation, use their knowledge and learning around death and dying and loss and grief to, to do something in their local community. And it doesn't have to be, it can be about any topic um, around death and dying. So 
that's really how it began and, and it's grown and grown and grown ever since. Kerry, I was impressed to see lots of rural engagement um, on the Dying to Know Day website. Has this always been the case? Yeah, it has been actually. I think it's Dying to Know Day offers something quite unique, I think, to the space gives people an opportunity to kind of step to step up in their in their communities and do something and uh, we, we found that it the events and the people getting involved have come from everywhere yes so um, rural rural events small small um, towns and people running soup days and and you know running um, small events within their town have been popular since the beginning and we love that because it's just so grassroots it's it's so much about local communities and each community you know has its own flavor has its own set of issues has its own um, information that they that people want to share together and talk about together so that's really important you mentioned soup days what are some of the more interesting events that you've attended over the years well, there's been everything from well, there was a cake, a, a, a death cake competition a few years ago. <laughs> um, the Coffin Club down in Tassie started as as a Dying to Know Day event that has continued to grow and continued to inspire other people and other men shed to to start up Coffin Club. There's everything from you know, I, I really think some of the they, they don't sound um, like interesting as in wow factor, but people gathering their friends and having soup together with with their mates in their in their um, living rooms and having a conversation with a few chatterboxes or a few discussion cards. Those those events really inspire me because people are really yeah really embracing it, embracing the ideas. Yeah, and in Victoria, we've seen significant changes in legislation around end of life with the Medical Treatment Planning and Decision Act and Voluntary Assisted Dying Act last year. Have you noticed that this has changed or improved communication around end of life care? Well, I'm not in Victoria, so I've got to say I'm a bit out of the loop with on the ground in Victoria. Certainly as as a psychologist, um, I'm a psychologist, uh, one of the professional groups who are involved in assessment. And, and so from a professional point of view, I've certainly been involved in some conversations around end of life. I think what, what, it, what we've had is a natural progression, I think, over the last decade of a growing number of people in all sectors, in all spaces, starting to talk about um, death and loss and, and grief. Because grief, I mean, just was on your program last year, but Jess talks a lot about the importance of um, really looking after our workers, um, corporates starting to think about, well, okay, if I've got people who need time off to care for someone who's dying, how do we manage that? How do we really support our workers to, to enable them to do that? And then if someone dies, how do we then support people in grief? Those are the conversations we're seeing starting to, to really grow and an awareness happening across many sectors. Bringing to life conversations on life's only inevitability. We are dying to tell on Joy 94.9. I love the Groundswell Project website. The particular slogan that jumped out at me is we are pro-common sense and anti-euphemism. Who comes up with your great slogans? Oh, yeah, so that I think you're talking about our manifesto. 
um, our manifesto is a is a new thing. We we really um, as we started to grow, we realised that we'd learnt a lot over the last kind of eight years, and we thought, well, let's write a manifesto. It actually kind of it, most of it fell out of me while I was procrastinating writing my PhD. <laughs> so, um, so um, we and but we like most things at Groundswell, we we do a lot of work together. So it was a real um, a real kind of working together around kind of what are the things that are important to us. The manifesto is a way to try and just talk about why we do what we do and and what we believe in at Groundswell. So, yeah, we had a lot of fun with it. And how do you find, you personally find, plain talking about death, death goes down with most of the people that you're talking to? Well, I would say that most of the time, it's not, even if someone is anxious about talking about death, they're curious. Most people are curious about what I do, curious about the end of life, curious about what's going on. So... I would say, especially the last, you know, the last few years in particular, there's a growing need and people are also picking up on that. They're, they're caring for their parents and they're caring or they've been involved in a death or they've kind of thought, oh, geez, you know, there's something, like, it feels like we could have done something um, different here or something was missing in terms of the, the match between our culture as a family and our values as a family and what we ended up doing for the ceremony. Um, there was something more meaningful we could have done. People are starting to kind of question and think about the traditional ways of doing death. So I've found that most people are really up for it. And, and at Groundswell, um, the learnings that we've had really over the last eight years too is that it's not we would say, as as we've written in our manifesto, we would say that you know death really isn't a taboo topic. Um, that for most people, it's about the context that you bring the bring the conversation up in. If you bring great food, if you put great food around the table, uh, this is why <laughs> death cafe is so popular. Mm. You know, you put wine around the table, uh, wine on the table, great food, and ask people to come and. Um, be part of a conversation most people are up for it um so yeah i think it's about for us it's about socializing getting back to the the natural and and kind of usual ways that we used to talk about these topics which were kind of just in our communities and together um as families yeah kerry it's interesting you just touched before on what um people are now calling the death movement um, certainly in the USA, there's a there's a, a death movement. There's a an event that was held in um, San Francisco this year um, called Reimagine End of Life, and there were seven and a half thousand people that participated over a week. So, I mean, I think that's that's fairly significant. And of course, here in Australia, we have thanks to you, Dying to Know Day. How else do you think this death movement is presenting itself here in Australia? I think it's the the death movement movement is really I think also presenting in in the fact that we're participating um, in other movements that are that are happening around. So there's great interest in the things that are happening in the US, for example, and the reimagined stuff as well as um, you know, Caitlin Doherty's stuff and the death Death Cafe movement has also been very strong. Death Cafe really started um, here in Australia not long after John had had really launched um, the Death Cafe movement. 
um, I, I, not long before John died, actually last year, John Underwood, um, I was sending, I sent him a, a tiny little snippet, a little screenshot of of a conversation that I'd had with someone um, as part of my PhD, and I'd said to the that we were having a back and forth about um, conversations and social things to do to talk about death, and at the time. I think it was 18 death cafes had been run in the world. Um, and it was at the time that I think just not, yeah, about 4,000 had been run at that stage. And I was just, um, I wanted to share that little snippet with him because it was such a profound yeah. difference from the, you know, 18 or whatever it was to the 4,000 that he was now up to and is now over 6,000, I think heading up towards 7,000. So I think Australians embrace those kinds of new those new social movements and social things that that are happening, and and I think certainly funerals are starting to change. There is there is there are um, a lot of funeral directors talking about how that how they can do death differently. It's been a massive change in cemeteries actually, uh, and and I think particularly in Victoria, but you know in. The cemeteries are wanting to re-engage with the community again. Oh, absolutely. And that's, been a, that's that's been a fascinating thing to to watch from early uh, early days, and I think they still are a bit anxious about it. But um, but to their credit, cemeteries are now just like okay, we need to we need to include our communities, spend more time with our communities, and I think that's um. That's fabulous. Well, Springvale Botanical so. Cemetery here in Melbourne is particularly good at that. They've got an extraordinary um, cafe there where they have jazz on Sunday mornings and people actually take their dogs for a walk and sit and have breakfast there with their families. And it is, it's a beautiful public space because, I mean, the gardens at Springvale are extraordinary anyway, but, but it is, it's become, you know, a place that people go and meet and um, it is a really lovely place to go. And that's because they have, as, as you say, food, good food, bring good food and, you know, a nice environment. People will come and, you know, coming back to the funeral directors again as well, you know, I had a funeral director reach out to me this week and say, we'd like to do something around dying to know day, Steph, what would you suggest? And I said, well, I think if you get good coffee and good muffins and set up a, a death cafe, you, people will come to you. And um, so, you know, as you're saying, it, it is... It's not just in the end of life sector now. It's it's you know these things are starting to move into the death care profession as well, which is you know where it really should be. Absolutely, yeah. And and for, so for me, part of my PhD was looking at the death system, and for me, the death system is the thing that makes sense um, in being able to understand social change and the levers for change that we're starting to see, um, because palliative care, funeral industry is are only actually are only part of the death system, um, there are a whole lot of other aspects of the death system that really when you start to think about um, the death system, it, it opens up your thinking about, wow, there are so many different spaces and different ways and different parts of the society that we can make a difference in in the way that we can change the way we do death and dying and grief. Kerry, as a death care professional, I'm interested in the lack of information and planning around funerals and dispositions. And as someone, you as someone who's worked in palliative care, do you think there's an opportunity to bridge the gap between end-of-life care and death care? Wow. Oh, gosh, that is such a great question. <laughs> that is such a great question. That is like, that, that was one of, 
you know, that was one of my key things in it from from my research that that we're not yeah we're not doing that we need to bridge that gap um how can I, we make I, this happen <laughs> i've got about five billion thoughts going through my <laughs> mind right now how can we make that happen so this is this is where i think we need to take a grassroots bottom-up approach as well as a top-down approach so obviously the general community, regular people need to know what what their options are and they need to be able to to be able to advocate for themselves when they need to. And that's one thing. So that's important. So for example, if someone dies in a hospital or an institution, if that institution doesn't have um, policies that enable you to take your uh, deceased person home with you, then then um, they need then that person needs to be savvy enough to be able to go. Hang on, I know this is my legal right, and I can do this, um, and hold their ground around that. For example, however, if the policies in place in that hospital are so rigid, and and uh, then then really it doesn't take much for a family. To have to back down on that on that wish or on that want, um, so we have to have policies in place in our institutions, and we have to start to get policy aware. I think in our institutions, to that in, in a way that starts to enable families to to bring their choices to life. So if we're going to build death literacy in the community, that's one thing. And our, my question then becomes: How are are the institutions death literate? Are the institutions ready for all these, um, um, you know, strong-willed, educated people coming into their institutions and saying, no, that's not on, um, this is what I want, I know I can legally get it, this is what I know I can do, or I'm going to transfer my loved one to another hospital, or I'm going to transfer them home, I'm going to organise my own transport, for example. All of those things... We need to take um, a bottom-up and top-down approach, I think. So that's where the institutions um, and policy and health policy becomes really important. And the death literacy of our health professionals also becomes important because so many of us are dying in institutions and we, we do in institutions kind of get into our routines of practice, our clinical routines. So when someone comes along and says, no, that's not what I want, actually, I'd like to do this. It can be very discombobulating for everyone involved. And so death literacy is different to understanding palliative care and understanding how um, we die and how we do the end of life in terms of a clinical delivery, service delivery point of view. So, yeah, um, we need death literacy across the board and we need policies to support people. Mm, It is is an interesting... um Interesting, interesting answer to an interesting question. Um, Kerry, so one final question. What are you going to be doing on the 8th of August this year? That's a very good question. Um, so I've done everything so far from sitting at my computer and doing social media all day, which involves everyone doing events, texting me their photos <laughs> so I can put them online. Um through to being, you know, all day at Fed Square or, or kind of being an event. I'm probably, I haven't made my plans yet, but I've got a few invites and I'm trying to sort out what I what I can do and what I can manage. So I suspect this year I'll be at an event and um, I'll 
probably be um, talking a lot all day, <laughs> doing media and then doing um, lots of talking with people and um, at an event. And then I'll finish the day as I like to with a with a glass of something just to kind of cheer on everyone who's who's running events and and the amazing grassroots efforts that happen across the country on the day. So that's what I'll be doing. Oh, well done. Thank you for joining us and um, we will be dying to know what happens on the 8th of August. So we'll we'll, we'll get get you or uh, Jessie back and we can do a little round-up. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.